Thank you, Nick, in the sound booth for turning that light off. I promise it wasn't like this wow strobe light effect to make my preaching that much more powerful. Ugh. So if you didn't notice, there it goes. Is it still going? Oh, man. This could be bad. Oh, does it really? The, the lights? The lights do? Pay attention. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. There you go. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be there this evening. My parents got saved when my mom was pregnant with me. Um, so they were brand new Christians when I was born. But I had the privilege of learning the Bible at a young age and being taught the Bible at a young age. And uh, as I grew in wisdom and in stature, or maybe knowledge and in stature, um, there were passages of Scripture that became very, very meaningful to me. And I don't know if, if your life as a Christian has been like this, where there are certain passages of Scripture that really have a, a special force, a special place in your life. Um, there's passages like, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, where I vividly remember where I was and what was going on in my life at that time when I'm reading, Your, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Um, I, I have vivid memories of reading Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, you know, where Paul is saying, the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I wish I did, I don't do, and, and remembering all of what was going on at life in life and just how those passages gripped me. There's one passage that was equally as powerful in my life, and it's found in Philippians. You don't need to turn there, but it's one that's probably familiar to many of you. It's Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And then later in verse 10, that I may know him. Man, I remember that pastor who was preaching that passage. And I remember the power. And I remember even the sermon illustration that he used. And, and just how significant that was in my life. But the thing is, passage in a passage like that, in that specific passage, I remember the illustration. But I also remember asking the question, okay, so what? Like, that I may know him. This is true. Yes, I do count all things but rubbish that I may know Christ. This is true. But what does that mean? And what does that look like? Because if anything is more frustrating than a Christian, it's to hear something great and wonderful and knowing it's powerful and then really not knowing what it looks like. So it's kind of like, you know, you have this energy and you have this enthusiasm and you run out the door and you're like, uh, okay, so what? But knowing God is the theme of Second Peter. So as I use that phrase, what I want to do as we go through the book of Second Peter here in the next month to a month and a half, we're going to appeal to the value of knowing God. 
But my fear and what I want to avoid is having that simply be a cliche. Like, what does that actually mean? When a great spiritual truth becomes a cliche, Christians can become frustrated. One such truth, one such reality is the supreme value of knowing God. Knowing God is the solution to all false teaching and all false teachers. Knowing God is the high point of our existence. Knowing God is the key to persevering in the face of difficulty. But what does that mean? What does knowing God mean? So this week and the following weeks, we're going to be going through the book of 2 Peter. Now, in the context of 2 Peter, you have the Apostle Peter, who is writing to saints in Asia Minor, saints who were experiencing a lot of persecution. In fact, Peter's first letter to them, which is called 1 Peter, is a lot about enduring hardships, experiencing difficulty for the cause of Christ. Well, layered on to 1 Peter is 2 Peter, which is not only enduring hardships, but enduring false teaching. And the fact that there were some who had been even within them who were rising up or were going to rise up. And there were those who were from without that were introducing false doctrine. And it was creating a level of disruption. And Peter's solution wasn't to give them anything new. In fact, he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, I'm writing this to you by way of reminder. So if the saints that Peter was writing to in 2 Peter were hoping for new information, they weren't going to get any. He was just simply telling them what they had already heard from him and what they needed to hear again. And that is, as Christians, you must have a true knowledge of God. So, I want to define for us, before we go any further, because I, I set this up, and if I don't define knowledge, boy, I'm doing a lousy job. So I'm like, okay, what is it? I want to give you a definition of knowledge, and then what I want to do here, a biblical definition of knowledge, that is, and then what I want to do here, and then the next several uh, messages in 2 Peter, is show the impact of that knowledge on the Christian. Okay? So here is what I believe to be a great definition of knowledge as it plays out in 2 Peter. I would love to believe this is original with me, but it's not. So I'll give credit where credit's due. If you have an NIV study Bible, it's there in the bottom notes. I did a lot of studying, and this was the best one, at least I felt, really encapsulated in a simple way. So here we go. Biblical knowledge is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. True knowledge is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is informed and intimate. True knowledge is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is informed and intimate that results from conversion and growth. It's the result of conversion and growth. You say, okay, so 2 Peter, all this knowledge thing, where do you get this? Well, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Then in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render to you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the very end of the book, you know, he started the book, he started his letter with this emphasis on grace and peace through knowledge. But then at the end of the book, and what I would say is the theme verse of the book, 2 Peter verse eight, three, chapter 3 and verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? So knowledge. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is informed and intimate. So there's several key parts to that definition. Relationship. A relationship because salvation is the restoration of what God had intended, but man messed up. Man sins, and as such, stands guilty and condemned before God. He's been separated from God because of his sin. Salvation here, this, this true knowledge of God, it's a relationship in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the just for the unjust, so that we could be rightly related to him. Okay, so it's a relationship. But it's a relationship that's informed. So when I say informed, perhaps this is the first thing that came to mind when you think of knowledge. Like, okay, if I have knowledge about something, I have data. I have facts. Okay? A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ must be informed. Informed? Through God's Word. That's what we're doing right now. We're studying God's Word, right? But it's also intimate. Intimate in that it's more than just data. It's a person-to-person -person love for Christ that grows over time. So it would stand to reason that my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, as I know Him, as I am informed, my intimacy, intimacy with Him will also grow and we'll see that later on, okay? So this relationship grows as we become more like Christ. Over time, we will both learn more about God and Christ, and we will love God and Christ more. Okay, so I was thinking this morning, as I'm watching two individuals get baptized, I am, as I get older, I am loving celebrating the ordinances. Just that much more. Communion, baptism, it is so wonderful. Not just because we need to do it, we do, but because it really is a one anotherness. I mean, we could do baptisms in a bathtub, but that would be unbiblical. We could do communion at home, but that would be unbiblical. These are church things. And when we have baptism and when we have communion, we celebrate these ordinances, we're actually identifying with one another. There's a reality of relationship that takes place when we do those things. And even when our little children watch us do these things, they see other people doing what maybe mom and dad are doing. And they wonder. And we tell them. And we share the gospel with them. This is activity that is related to our identity. And I don't know about you, that as our world gets darker and darker, and as the day of the Lord approaches, hopefully that becomes more and more meaningful. 
Like, I'm watching two people get baptized and saying, there is nowhere else I would rather be right now. This is my reality. This is our reality. This is who we are. This is where I belong. Praise the Lord. So that being said, the theme of true knowledge can be traced throughout the book of 2 Peter, and in the following weeks, we'll see how true knowledge relates to the lives of believers. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and we're going to be seeing the impact that this true knowledge has on our lives. Okay? So we're going to be seeing the impact of this true knowledge on our lives. Now, going into a book like 2 Peter, there are so many rich passages. In fact, we're going to be reading several of them this evening that are so familiar to you and that may have a level of meaning like what I described earlier on in the evening. And I want to do justice by this. Um, I also want to be able to get the content in. And so I trust that as we look into the word, your hearts will be edified uh, as we, we try to handle this properly here. So as I said before, what impact does this true knowledge of God, this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is informed and intimate, what impact does this have on our lives? Well, first of all, we'd say true knowledge shapes our values. True knowledge, that relationship with Jesus Christ that is informed and intimate, shapes our values. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Okay? Verse 3. Seeing that his divine power, that his, that's God, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Well, the first thing I want to point out here is that God is a giver. God is a giver. We see that in verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted. Your translation may say given. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us. Guess what? God gives us something. God gives us two somethings. And if God is going to give it to us, it must be worth an awful lot. And if we see here God granting us something, we need to stop right then and there and say, okay, whatever I'm getting, this is really, really valuable. And the fact of the matter is, is that if I don't see it as value, valuable, the problem isn't with what he granted to me. The problem is with how I'm seeing it. Okay, so that's a really big deal. Because when we look at what God has granted to us, part of it is almost unbelievable, and the other part is invisible. Unbelievable? How so? Well, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness everything we need for life and godliness. God has granted. So in that true knowledge of him, in that relationship that is informed and intimate and is continuing to grow as a result of our conversion, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And my first response to that is, do I really believe that? Everything I need? God has given me everything I need? And against the backdrop of false teaching here, remember, these saints that are being written to, they're experiencing false teaching. And this false teaching was some pretty nasty stuff. 
It was what theologians call antinomianism. We won't quiz you on that on the end. Basically, it just means lawlessness. Like, do what you want. It's a spirituality with no strings attached. Rules, psh, do what you want. In a couple weeks, we'll look at 2 Peter 2 and see the very explicit description of those false teachers. But the fact of the matter is, is part of the appeal of the false teaching, being able to do whatever you want, really is a communication of you don't have anything or everything that you need for life and godliness. You're missing out on something. It's as old as Adam and Eve and the snake. Did God really say? Because you're going to be missing out on something that God was trying to withhold from you. And that was at the heart of this false teaching. And so when we see here that we have been granted everything for life and godliness, we have to recalibrate our vision to be in agreement with that, even when we don't feel like it. But the second thing we see that God has granted to us is great and precious promises. Promises that the false teachers were trying to undermine. Keep your finger here and turn over to chapter 3 and verse 2. Actually, verse 3, I'm sorry. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. They were calling into question whether or not God really cared and whether or not God would actually judge. Do what you want. Their greed, their sensuality, it was abundant. And where was God's judgment? Not there. Where is the promise of his coming? You're holding out. You're living these holy lives. Why? But what Peter says that he has granted us his great and precious promises. Those are valuable. And part of the promise is that God is a just God. In fact, we see that in verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse... Nine, the Lord is not slow about his what? Promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is going to judge all right. That is certain. But guess what? He's not slow in it. He's just really, really merciful. And because of his mercy, you saints in Asia Minor, you have salvation. And by the way, looking at that passage, he's granted to every, his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, his glory and excellence through the true knowledge of him, he's granted us precious and magnificent promises. And because what we've been given, 
We're then free from the clutches of worldly, lustful corruption. We see that at the end of verse 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And again, on the backdrop of the false teaching, this would have looked like anything except corruption. I mean, you think corruption, you think something, the word here gives a picture of decay, a picture of something that is rotting. No one is attracted to things that rot. It's breaking down. It's decomposing. It's gross. That's not the way that what the false teachers were presenting things looked like. That one, that's not what they looked like. The false teaching made it look like the opposite of corruption. Made it look like freedom. Made it look like fun. When in fact, spiritually, its result was just that, corruption. So the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ shapes our values. We see the world through spiritual lenses, through the value of what God has granted to us. And because God is a giver, and because his gifts to us are so valuable, we should expect that knowledge to be more than just in here. It's more than just an intellectual, data-based source of information. And it's more than just a sentimentality. Mm, I love God. Nobody else around me knows it, but I love God. It really doesn't change the way I live, but I love God. No, it actually was going to change the way that they lived. And so we see impact number two of true knowledge. True knowledge impacts our value, but secondly, it prompts us to live rightly. It prompts us to live rightly. We see this in verses 5 through 9. Now for this reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and in increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in da, 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 the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So I said that true knowledge of God prompts us to live rightly. How so? Well, in verse 5, it says, Now for this reason also, applying all diligence. Okay? So one of the biggest criticisms, if you're a theologian and you studied the Greek language here of 2 Peter, it's a lot different than the language of 1 Peter. In fact, 2 Peter has a lot of words that are only used one time in the New Testament. Okay? One of them is right here. Applying all diligence. That word speaks to heavy exertion, I should say. Hard work. God has called us, perhaps your translation says, to make every effort. So there's this strain, there's this effort, there's this um, sense of not just God giving and us just kind of passively moving, but instead God equipping and then us actively working. It's an effort, though, making effort, any effort, it's an effort in light of the gifts that we have been given. So by way of illustration. So let's say 
December 15th or so, you drop a subtle hint to that someone who's going to buy you a present for Christmas. And you say, you know what? I just want to be more healthy this next year. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution to be more healthy. I'm thinking about joining a gym. And this person says, aha, I know what to get them. And so they get them a gym membership. They get you a gym membership. And sure enough, you make that New Year's resolution. And now you have that three-month membership. And you're going to go be healthy. But I'll tell you what. There's something you got to do. You got to go to the gym. <laughs> okay? I mean, and, and when you get to the gym, you know, there's, there's the bench press bench, and there's really strong people that kind of intimidate you, so you go to the bikes to start off maybe a little easier, and, and, and then there's other places where you can do rowing, and, and there's mats where people are stretching out, and that's not enough. I mean, you could look at all that. You could smell it all, but you got to get on the bench. You got to press the weight. You got to Ride the bike. And what this is saying here is, yes, God has given us exceeding great and precious promises. Yes, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But it's not simply just, he's pushing you, and you're just along for the ride. No, there is an effort to apply these attributes that are about to be described. Applying all diligence. Add to your faith. This word for add was used here in secular literature for those who would provide at their own expense. So if any of you are in the trades, when you first started the trades, maybe you uh, joined a union or maybe you were an apprentice or whatever, however the process was going, um, at some point in time you had to buy the tools in order to do the trade. Unless they were given to you. I mean, if you're really going to be in that trade, you had to invest in the equipment in order to do that trade skillfully. Why? Because if you're going to be a skillful tra tradesman, you have to have the right tools, right? Now, most people buy them out of pocket because they're making that investment. Those are their tools, right? That's the picture here that Peter is trying to get at. Add to your faith, meaning this, you are making a personal investment. There is an investment of effort. There is an investment of intentionality. There's an investment of focus. I am going to add these things. Not all by myself. God has already provided the means through the true knowledge, through that relationship through Jesus Christ that is both intimate and informed and is growing. But I have a role here. So as a result, these attributes are being added to one's faith. Now, as you look at them, it's kind of easy. And honestly, before I started really studying out this text, I kind of looked at it like a stair step. Like, add your faith. I want to make sure I get it right. Add your faith, supply moral excellence. And then supply to that, moral excellence, knowledge. And then knowledge, self-control. And it's kind of like, okay, I got that one. Now I'm going to add this one. And now I'm going to add this one. It's like a sequence. That's really not the way it is. In fact, this way of writing was quite common both in sacred and secular literature. Think of it perhaps more like the fruit of the Spirit. You know, we don't think of the fruit of the Spirit of sequential, as sequential. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
we don't think, okay, so before I can get patience, I have to have love, joy, and peace. And I don't have that, so I can really let you have it because I got no patience right now. No, that's not the way it works. The fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of what God's doing is all of those things. And so what Peter is saying in these believers, true knowledge is going to impact your life by you investing effort to add these things to your life. And if these qualities, verse 8, are yours and increasing, okay, so there's action, they're growing. Look at the verbiage here. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wording here is a double negative. Again, it's pointing to the backdrop of false teaching. I keep bringing up false teaching because false teaching was such a big deal to these people. It was, come, it was about to come from within. And it was coming from without. And it was really, really attractive. But when we have this wording here, these qualities are yours and increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Why doesn't he just say they render you useful and fruitful? Well, the reason is, is that false teachers were and are useless and unfruitful, even though they look very useful and very fruitful. Paul is pointing, I'm sorry, Peter is pointing them to the spiritual reality of what their teaching was going to result in. And the reason why they were useless and unfruitful, these false teachers, is because their lives didn't look like verses 5 through 7. So mark this down. You can say what you want. You can say anything you want. But how you live says everything about your knowledge of the Lord. Say what you want. Post what you want. Tattoo what you want. How you live says everything about your true knowledge, about your relationship that is informed and intimate. Okay? So the true knowledge of God impacts our values, and it prompts us to live rightly. And then finally, we see that true knowledge provides us assurance. True knowledge provides us assurance. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. True knowledge provides us assurance. First of all, we are assured that he knows us. He knows us. This is more than just knowing him. He knows us. Look at verse, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make sure about who's his calling and his choosing you. He's doing the work. If he's calling you and he's choosing you, he knows you. And a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is the assurance that he knows me. This is the intimacy of the relationship. The more we seek to know him, the more we realize just how much and how well he knows us. Have you ever had a song going on in your house and you take the egg beater and you start singing into the microphone 
right, the, the egg beater microphone, and you start maybe dancing around, and you don't think anybody's there, and you're just going to it, and then you stop and you realize that one of your family members has been watching you for quite some time. They just got into the glimpse of the wonderful reality that is you. That's what you're like when nobody's home, right? There's a level of knowledge now that's, oh, and it's kind of funny. It's kind of silly. Worse yet, have you ever pocket dialed someone and then found out afterwards, oh boy. Or has someone pocket dialed you and you're tempted to just, eh, I wonder what they're talking about. There's nothing that surprises God about us. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian, that assures me. Because as I'm longer and longer in this me, I am sometimes shocked at the things that come to mind or, or, or the, the weaknesses or the, the foolishness. And, you know, God doesn't ever have buyer's remorse. Never. And that assures me. He knows me better than me. I praise the Lord for that. Not only are we assured that he knows us, but we are also assured that we will finish well. Look at the end of verse 10. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So I'm going to finish well in behavior. As we make certain about our calling and we discover just how much he knows us and loves us, we aspire to persevere and not stumble in the growth that we read in verses 5 through 7. But not only that, look at verse 11. For in this way, the entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So it's not just us slugging away at persevering in this life. Okay? It's not just hold on tight. It's going to be over soon. And that's probably what a lot of these saints were thinking. Hold on tight. It's going to be over soon. No. There would be an abundant supply, abundantly supplied entrance into the kingdom. Okay, so it's springtime now, right? And this is the time when you go into the mall or you go to, say, Legacy Village or whatever, and the shops have the prom dresses out, and, you know, we're starting to get close to marriage season, and, you know, the wedding gowns and everything, and, and so I have a house of women, and so I'm learning to appreciate just how important looking and feeling pretty is, right? There's this value of looking beautiful and feeling beautiful, and when the dress fits just right, and the makeup and the hair and the jewelry are just so, and when the shoes aren't too uncomfortable, and it just, there's this sense of more than just looking in the mirror and liking it, there is a feeling. There is a sense of, I'm beautiful. And then they maybe walk down the steps, or they walk down the aisle, and it's affirmed. You know, girls dream about that. They wonder what it's going to feel like when they're little. And then they experience it. And maybe it matches, maybe it doesn't. But can I tell you, that whole image is what Peter is getting at when we enter heaven. Not just slipping in the back door. We're here. 
But those who persevere, those who have had a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ have added and worked hard and striven to add those qualities and to persevere until the end. When they walk into heaven, it's going to be more than just opening the door, closing the door and say, hey guys, there's an abundant entrance supplied by God. And the knowledge that they are to pursue will result in a future that is far better than anything imagine, they can imagine. And it's certainly far better than any freedom that false teaching can provide in the moment. Far better. And I have to remind myself of that. Because I live day to day to day. And a lot of times I don't believe that or I forget about that. But those who persevere have the assurance of that reality. I want that. Don't you? Amen. So in conclusion, true knowledge, that intimate, informed relationship with Christ that results from our salvation and growth, it impacts what you value. It impacts how you live and your certainty of the future. Knowing God in Jesus Christ is not just a cliche. As one author put it, biblical writers never divorce the head and the heart in terms of spiritual growth. Knowledge involves intellectual content, but knowledge is personal and it's relational. That's why we define knowledge as a relationship that's both intimate and informed. And with the time that I have left, I want to share with you how I am learning and growing in this way. And I ask permission I was granted permission to be able to share with you what I'm about to share. I had the opportunity of discipling two men that are older than me, one man who was saved a relatively short period of time, and another man that had been saved almost as long as I've been alive. And there was a time where I was discipling one, one man who had been saved for a relatively short period of time, and we got to a, a chapter in the Foundations book, and I remember he came in, it was great. He came in, he took the book, and he slapped it on the ground. He said, all right, I don't agree with this at all. Tell me how this can be right. I'm thinking, this is going to be a good one. So what do we do? We sit, and we read the Bible together. And it took a while. Well, not just that day, but future days, okay? And it ended up well. This person still comes here to grace. They're faithful serving. They're discipling someone else. Praise the Lord. It's awesome. So this other individual that I was asked, and, and, and we, were, we got together, and, and we started studying the Word. And in time, in a short period of time, this individual pointed out some things in the book and said, you know what, I just don't agree with that. And then we went to a later portion of the book, and he said, you know, I don't agree with that either. I just, I just don't. And then we got to another portion of the book, and he said, you know, I just don't agree with that. And I'll be honest, those two scenarios I handled differently. I handled differently because the one person, in my opinion, hadn't been studying the Bible real long. And I kind of gave him some leeway. All right, I get how this can be offensive. You don't really know the Bible real well. We're learning it together, so let's keep going. But the other person who had been saved for a long time, I'll be honest, I was kind of threatened by that. I was kind of threatened because, hey, don't you know better? Don't you know this already? And can I tell you, I was in the wrong for thinking that. Because if we all, as a congregation, 
are endeavoring to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we all are trying to grow in the true knowledge of God, then we shouldn't be afraid of the difficult questions. So let me tell you just a little bit about you. I don't know if you realize this or not. Okay? So I was doing a quick perusal this past week of our online directory. Do you know that in our young adult slash singles group, we have roughly about oh, 80 to 90 people in that group, young adults, singles, career. Over half of them either grew up here at Grace Church of Mentor or grew up having been given institutional Christian education. Over half of them. So of those roughly 90 or so, more than 45. In our young marriage group, going through there's 100 and some odd people there. Over 60% had either grown up here at Grace Church of Manor and or they had been part of a institution where they had learned the Bible like at a, at a Christian school. Okay? And as I looked at those two groups, I realized there are over a hundred souls at Grace Church that would call Grace Church their church in between 20s and 40s that have been learning the Bible since they were five. That's a blessing, isn't it? I hope that's not scary. I hope that's a blessing. It's like, wow, praise the Lord. The reason why I bring that up is because in this particular environment, it means that they probably know a lot about the Bible already. It also means that when they have questions about the Bible, they're probably going to be tough ones. And as I'm describing this, I'm not trying to pit one group against another. Please don't hear me in that way. Not doing that at all. I'm just describing a demographic and what's true of an age demographic. From 20 to 40, this is true. That's it. That's all I'm trying to do, okay? That being said, if you are part of that group, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't feel qualified to speak into their lives because perhaps you got saved later on in life or perhaps you didn't have that opportunity. It also doesn't mean that older saints should expect them to have figured out everything by now because they haven't. We haven't. None of us have, right? So as we, are as we are making our ambition to, to grow in our knowledge of our God and Savior, two things must be true. We all are learners, and we all must be lovers. When I say we all are learners, we ought to want to know more and more and to know why. And that means we must really be students of the Word. So let me tell you something else that's true. In the past 15 to 20 years, we have been trying to do things more biblically as a church in regards to discipleship and how things have played out. And again, this isn't a criticism. It's just this kind of the way it is. In that time, there have been souls who've brought up here, grown up here at Grace Church, where their discipler was either their parents or perhaps a youth leader. And then they got into the youth group, and then it was probably Pastor Tim. And now they're adults, now they're in a career, living on their own, perhaps married, perhaps with kids. 
And when someone is born again relatively recently, we match them up with a disciple right away. But sometimes there are those who've been here for years and years and years. And you say, who's your disciple? And it's not that they don't want one. It's just, I don't know. Was it my fourth grade teacher? Was it my youth? Was it Pastor Tim? And he's got about like 250 disciples. If that's the case, is it me? Who is it? And so sometimes when these difficult questions come out, I want to grow in my knowledge. I want to grow into my intimacy with the Lord, and I'm really struggling with this particular question, but I don't want my hand slapped when I ask the question. And that's why all of us, regardless what age we are, all of us must be learners. we got to dig into this book and keep digging into this book and can't rely on cliches. We can't just say, well, trust in the Lord. Walk in the Spirit. Grow in grace. All of those things are true. But what do they mean? What do they mean in that relationship? I don't know that the solution is, okay, let's match them up, as much as let's just have a relationship. Let's get to know one another. Let's just follow God's word and appreciate the desire to learn. But then also have a disposition of love. Learning without love is worthless, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I can have all of the wisdom and knowledge and be prophet and prophesy, but if I don't have love, it's worth nothing. Learning should result in a greater love for God and for others. And, and I'm going to talk to a, a, a relatively small portion of you, but you'll know who I am. You know who I'm talking to when I bring this up. The truth is, we don't have the resources that some of the, the institutions have out there. We're not grace to you. Man, if you want better preaching, if you want to listen to better preaching, it's out there. <laughs> better than me. Better than Pastor Tim. Better than Pastor Ken or Pastor Steve. There's way better preachers than all of us. We don't have a publishing company. We don't have ligonieres. We don't have together for the gospel. We don't have an active block. We don't have a lot of stuff that's out there. And I'm thankful for <laughs> the stuff that's out there. I benefit. I, I learn so much. But you got us. Amen. And, and the beauty of the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that intimate and informed relationship naturally extends to the saints that God has called you to be a part of in the local body of believers. I don't know how it couldn't. Right? Many other people can do this way better than we can. And that's not a cop-out for studying the Word. But I'll tell you what. If Grace Church is your church, this is your spiritual family. It's your spiritual family. So that being said, true knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's intimate. It's informed. And it's a relationship even when it comes with difficulty. Being able to ask the tough questions about why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. Being able to receive those questions without feeling threatened and assuming the worst. And being able to ask them with freedom that I can grow. If we are to grow in the true knowledge of the Lord, we must do this together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. We have so much to learn but I am so thankful for the saints that we're blessed to be with here. We're thankful for the 
body of Christ universal that we can enjoy, that we can learn from. But God, help us as we seek to grow in grace, as we seek to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, would this be concrete? Would it be more than just lip service? God, give us grace when we're given the tough questions. May our eyes be open to see relationships that can be built so that we can have the relational equity to be able to field these tough questions. Lord God, we thank you for each saint here that is growing. May they continue to grow. Protect them from false teaching. Protect them from the allure that is the now. And may they aspire to a greater joy. Not to say that now is miserable, but Lord, it does come with bearing a cross. So we love you and we thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we could sing a song, but it's 7 o'clock. And I'm the only guy here. And so I would just assume hear music and hear you guys fellowship with one another and do that whole kind of true knowledge thing with each other. Okay? Have a wonderful week. We pray for you all. Mondays, 9.30 to about 11 o'clock. You are in our thoughts. You're in our prayers. And then throughout the week, too. So thank you so much for being here. Lord bless you. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.